0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now, let's get into today's content. Let's open in our Bibles to Acts chapter 19 tonight for our study. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they will follow along, or they will pass one so you can follow along with us in our study. And, um, We're going to read the first seven verses of Acts chapter 19, and you are not having deja vu. (laughs) This is part three of Are You Experiencing the Spirit, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Why don't we pray first, then we'll read it, and then um, get into the message tonight. And so, Father, we again just come to you in this moment, Lord, and uh, uh, we remember, Father, that, that your word is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it reaches into the deepest part of us, and it puts life there. It divides soul and spirit. It gives understanding and Um, it it gives life to us. And so, Lord, we open up our hearts to you in this moment right now and pray uh, not only that we'd hear your word, but that your spirit would uh, anoint it to our hearts, that we would hear your voice in it and that we would see ourselves through its lens and that we would um, hear you speak to us individually and personally, Lord. So uh, take this moment, Lord, and, and use it for your glory and breathe on us now, your congregation here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 19 verse 1, it says that it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul having passed through the upper coasts came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were we're about twelve now. Uh, yes, this is the third week that we're in this passage, and um, if if you haven't heard the the two weeks previous, I invite you to look up those messages and catch up with us. Uh, this is a completely different message, not by um, way of review to go over those things again, um, but to look at it from perhaps a slightly different angle uh, yet again. And so, the first week that we looked at this passage, we uh, essentially looked at what it means. What what is the meaning behind um, this? Holy Spirit baptism and um, its place within our lives. And then last week we looked at why it matters and really what it implies. What is the implication of having uh, God the Holy Spirit living inside uh, of us, combined in one body with our human spirit? Uh, and tonight what I want to look at um, is that in its truest essence, this concept of God dwelling within us, in its truest essence, what does a life really look like or live like or what does it feel like when I'm truly uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, when I've received, when I'm experiencing God's Holy Spirit in my life? Now, the interesting thing about asking that question, what it actually looks like and what it means, is that if you were to ask a hundred people, a hundred Christians, even a hundred Bible students... What that looks like and what that means, you would probably get a hundred different answers to that question. Uh, there probably wouldn't be very many in common. And those answers would be shaped by, uh, first of all, person's own ideas about who God is. They would answer accordingly. Um, they would answer according to the things that they've been told or taught. Uh, we would answer according to things that we have seen, uh, witnessed, witnessed. Um, things that we've seen happen in life, in our lives, in other people. Maybe even things that we've seen on Christian television. We would uh, answer according to that. Or, or we would even answer that question according to things that we've read in the Bible. Assumptions that we make based upon uh, things that we read. Now, in most cases, what we find is that what we experience when we have the Holy Spirit living within us it falls short of what our expectations might be. When we uh, think about the size of something like that, and then what is our experience, we, we think, well, maybe it doesn't quite match up because if the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of me, then I should be probably frequently experiencing and living in the miraculous, like we see of Jesus. Jesus was the, the chief example of the God-man. And we see that when we follow Jesus, we see that there was miracles taking place and signs and wonders that were constantly there. And we would expect that that would be our experience as well. Or we might think that uh, the experience would be that we'd live a very epic and big life, like we see of someone like the Apostle Paul, who we know very definitely was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and it was just boom, 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 one thing to the next, and uh, there was just constantly um, energy and impact happening in his life. We, we think that we should feel very energetic that there, there should be a feeling of power within us if the Holy Spirit is in fact within us and that our lives would be very uh, eventful. Uh, we would also assume uh, that if we're filled with the Holy Spirit that our lives would be very enlightened that we would have a very clear vision of of what's happening around us, what's going on inside of us, what's going on in the world, in our families, that that we should have a a very clear perspective because the God who sees all things is living inside of us. Uh, And so we would uh, most likely assume that we should live a life without mystery, that everything should always be clear and easy. We also would assume that if the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, that that our lives would be very efficient, that we would pray, and then the answer to the prayer would come right away because the God who's inspiring the prayer and is is in us also has the power to answer the prayer, and so we should just pray, and then that should happen, the thing that we pray for, or uh, that we would would think that um, we would hear something from God a promise or or something that he gives, and then it should just automatically happen because he said it, and now he has the power and the ability to just do it. We would also assume that if, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're walking in the Holy Spirit, that our lives would always be kind of moving up and to the right. You know, things should always just be getting a little bit better Things should be getting a little bit stronger. Everything should be moving in a direction that we would like, you know? So if we're driving to work and we see that the bridge we need to cross is out, then we just simply park our car and we walk on water across the Hudson River because we have Jesus living inside of us and we know that he has that capability. If we run out of food and run out of money, then we just do like George Mueller did and we just say, okay, God, we thank you for the food that's not even here yet. And then a food truck breaks down right in front of our house and someone knocks at the door and says, I need to get rid of all this food before it goes bad. That, that's just what it should look like when we have the Holy Spirit living in us, or it should look like what we read about people like Charles Finney in times of old, who testifies that when he was sitting with the Lord just in front of a, a fireplace in his house, that God met him so powerfully that it was he, he used the words torrents and torrents of liquid love poured out upon him to the point where he had to ask God to stop because he thought he was going to die. And, and we should just assume that that's what it is going to be like all the time because we have God, the Holy Spirit, now living inside of us. Now, the truth of the matter is that in most cases and with most people, that's not our experience. We don't find that those things that we would assume or that we see in Jesus or Paul or that we hear even testified of people that have gone before, we find that we receive, we ask, we pray, we're saved, we know the Spirit's in us because we see the evidence of him in our lives, but yet that's not what we have. Our lives are, are, are surrounded by mystery and often by confusion. And there's this like bifurcation of our person where it seems like in some ways we're growing and doing well and making progress. But then in other areas of our life, it seems like God just didn't get in yet. And there's nothing happening at all. And we're just as, as bad or in the dark or lost as we ever were before. And it's not always this amazing uh, thing. And so what happens then is that when when our expectation doesn't align with our experience, now there's a struggle that happens inside of us, all right? We begin to doubt God. Internally, we would never vocalize that because we don't, we don't want to stumble anybody else and, and we don't know if, if it's right or wrong and we're confused, you know. but we begin to doubt God and we read the scripture, we analyze our experience and we say, eh, maybe I'm not sure, or we doubt ourselves. We think, well, maybe I did it wrong you know? <laughs> or maybe it didn't take, maybe I'm not really filled, not really experiencing it. Uh, other times, we respond by faking it. We think, well, okay, well, I'm not, this doesn't feel extremely genuine, but I see in the script what my life is supposed to look like, so I'm just going to produce the outcome that I assume should be real, and I'm going to fake it till I make it. I'm just going to hope that the experience catches up with my outward actions, and, and I'll just produce it. I'll jumpstart the work of the Spirit in my life, and I'll just profess something and confess something to be real in my life, even to the point where I deceive myself into thinking it's true, even though I know deep down inside that there's something that's maybe missing. Uh, another thing that we might do is we might, we might press in to search harder for it. Well, this is the way it's supposed to be, according to my assumption or my thought, my expectation. And so I'm just not not doing enough. So I'm going to search more for it. I'm going to try to crack the code, pray the right combination of words, do the right combination of things that get God's attention so that I can have more of him and experience what I think it's supposed to be like to have his Holy Spirit within me. I'm just going to try harder. And, And sometimes... Uh, Having done all that or a portion of that or maybe even none of that, we don't experience what our expectation is. And so sometimes we just give up. We give up in our mind, and we think, okay, well, I'm just unqualified. Uh, I, I prayed the prayer of salvation by accident. God saves who he's going to save. He anoints who he's going to anoint. I'm not one of those people. And so I'm just unqualified for it, or maybe I'm just uncalled, or maybe in some way I'm just unworthy. And we uh, kind of just go on, and we live in this cloud of, uh, of unbelief in the whole thing. you know. And so, so what is it? We read about the, the, the Spirit. Paul said, have you received the Spirit since you believed? We see it had an effect in, in these people's lives. We see it on the pages of Scripture. We see it in Jesus and in Paul. We've seen it in other people. But what is it actually like, and why is it that so often our experience doesn't align with our expectation? Well, there's a passage of Scripture, and I want to invite you to turn there. It's First Kings chapter 19, Because that text of scripture gives us an answer. It it explains to us, it illustrates, it identifies for us what it is to have a spirit-filled life, also what it isn't, and then how also we can experience it and what it actually looks like in reality, okay? Now, 1 Kings 19 happens to be about the person in the Bible, or at least in the Old Testament, that embodies what we would call Holy Spirit power. It's this man named Elijah. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, a man who is, in the Bible, an illustration of what it is to be empowered by and filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and chapter 19, where I've asked you to turn, um, actually is a text a chapter that comes right after, moments after, the most epic and demonstrative manifestation of God's power, perhaps in the whole Bible, short of what we see in the person of Jesus. You know, that epic moment when uh, Elijah has a contest with the prophets of Baal. Now, I want to, having said that and, and let in that way, I want to read you a verse from James chapter 5, verse 17. That talks about Elijah this way, and and I want you to hear it because you have to hear it. It says of Elijah, it says that he was a man of like passions, just like us. In other words, he had the same kind of emotions. He had the same strengths and weaknesses. He had the same human frame. He had the same capacity to think and and analyze and feel and operate. He had the same capacity to doubt or mistrust. And he also had the capacity to advance, go forward, and succeed. He had all of what we had. He was no different, James tells us, than you and I. And that's an important piece of the puzzle. Because if we think that the people in the Bible were somehow different than us, then we can just segregate them into a different category and, 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 then, and then dismiss the experience that we would have and think, well, I'm not them, and so that doesn't count. But what the Bible tells us is that we are just like him, and he was just like us. So what did Elijah experience, and how does it relate to you and I and our experience with God, the Holy Spirit. Now, the context of chapter 19 is that the nation of Israel, over whom Elijah was a prophet, was in steep spiritual decline. There had been a, a, a slow erosion of the spiritual uh, fire in the nation over a long period of time. It's been several generations since David and Solomon and kind of the apex of of the glory of that kingdom. The kingdom had now been divided and the people had cooled. They were turning away from God. They were leaning upon themselves. And there was just this idolatrous uh, rebellion, really, against the person of God. And that's when Elijah was called as a prophet um, to come on the scene. Now, God had said long before, that one of the signs that people were turning too far away is that he would send famine upon the land. And so when Elijah comes on the scene, he declares it, and he goes to the king, whose name was Ahab at that time, and he says to Ahab that it's not going to rain on the earth except according to my word. And God closed up the heavens, and for over three years, there was not a drop of rain in the land of Israel. And so that was kind of Elijah's introduction onto the scene. Now, it tells us in the third year of this drought, of this famine, where there had been no rain, that God now speaks to Elijah, and he tells him, and he says, listen, the time has come. Go tell Ahab that there's going to be rain and that things are going to happen. And so Elijah arranges a meeting with Ahab on Mount Carmel. And when they come together there in this setting, Elijah says, we are going to have a contest and we're going to find out who God is, whether it's the idols of the Baals or whether it's Jehovah, the Lord, we're going to have a contest right now. And we're going to prove it because the living God is able to answer by sending fire from heaven. And so he gives them the conditions. He says, you guys go get a bull and build an altar. And you dress your bull and your sacrifice, and then you pray to your gods, and you ask him in his power to send fire from heaven and to consume your sacrifice without you helping. And then I will do the same exact thing. I'll get a bull, an altar, prepare it, dress it, and I will pray to the Lord, and we'll see whose God answers by sending fire from heaven, and let the true God be the one who sends fire, because he has the power to do it. And they say, good idea, let's do it. And so he says, you go first. And so they build their altar, they dress their bull, and they begin to shout, pray, dance, plead, beg, cut themselves, try to get the attention of, of their gods, and nothing happens. And Elijah taunts them. He actually mocks them. He says, is your God busy? Is he reading? Is he indisposed? Like, where's your God? And they go all the way until the evening, and then Elijah steps forward and he says, now it's my turn. And Elijah says, go get 12 barrels of water. And so they go and they get 12 barrels of water. Remember, it's a famine, and they're on Mount Carmel. That's no easy feat to go get water like that. And they baptize this sacrifice with water. They douse it, probably one barrel of water for every tribe of Israel. And you know that fire and water do not mix. And then Elijah, after this happens, he looks up to heaven, he raises his hands, and he says, O oh Lord God that you would show them that I have done these things according to your word and that you're turning their heart back to you again. And after praying that simple prayer, the heavens open, fire descends, the bull is consumed, the wood of the altar is consumed, the water around the trench is lapped up and dried up, and all of the people that were there in audience witnessing the spectacle that day began to declare the Lord, he is God, (laughs) the Lord, he is God. And Elijah, in that moment of power, the apex of his ministry, the most victorious moment that he's had in all all, all of his history and all of his time thus far, he, he calls and he says, get the prophets of Baal those that are leading the people in this false religion. And, and he slays them, 450 of them. And then he goes on his way to Jezreel. And then he tells Ahab, and he says, you better, you, know, you better get down the mountain because there's the sound of the abundance of rain. And so Ahab begins to move down and Elijah goes up and begins to pray. And he says, okay, God, you did the fire thing. Now I need you to do the rain thing. It hasn't rained for three and a half years. He prays seven times. He sees a small cloud off on the horizon, perceives that God has answered his prayer. And then again, filled with the strength of God, he begins to run down the mountain. And on his feet, he outruns Ahab, who's being pulled by a chariot and horses. And he comes into, you know, the plain where, where it's over. I mean, it's just the moment of moments, And if you're Elijah and if you're a prophet, you think this is it. This this is the byproduct, the fruit of all of my sacrifice. Everything that I've prayed for and lived for and responded to the calling of God for, everything that that I have been seeking of him and knowing of him but not seeing of him is now coming to pass. And he thinks this is it. And we're going to see the biggest revival that this nation has ever known. And it's going to be like it was in the days of David and Solomon and maybe even more so. Maybe. Because when we come into chapter 19, we find out that that's not exactly what happened. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, it says that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Jezebel was his wife, by the way. And she's not a good character. And you can just know that by the fact that nobody names their daughter this. Okay, you you know people look for biblical names all the time. Even the craziest of them, nobody names their daughter Jezebel because she was very wicked. And it says that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets of Baal with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, "So let the gods do to me and more also." if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, this is a death threat in the highest possible language, the strongest possible language. And you would think that Elijah would be like, bring it. (laughs) But watch what happens in verse 3. It says that when he saw that, he arose and he went for his life, or he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, the southernmost point in the nation of Israel at that time, which belonged to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. I am not better than my father's. Now, this is crazy to me because here's a man who just, I mean, what would, what would be going through your spirit, your mind, your thoughts, if you just experienced what Elijah experienced on Mount Carmel? This isn't a week later. This is moments later. This is like the next day on the morrow, the day after. I'd be like, oh, Lord, did that even happen? I'd still be pinching myself, you know, o- over the thing. And now all of a sudden, this messenger shows up and gives him this word from Jezebel. Jezebel says, you're dead meat. By tomorrow, at this time, you're toast. You're done. You're over. And, and here, here's the thing that's amazing to me, is that it says in verse uh, 3, it says that when he saw that, and I want you to notice that, it says that when he saw that. Now, listen, in those days, they didn't send messages with a YouTube link. Right, he did not open up his phone And see Jezebel giving him a message. This was not an Instagram story or a Snapchat, okay? He didn't see the message. He heard the message, but the language is very specific and explicit. It says that when he saw that, meaning that Elijah heard the message, but being a prophet of God, there was an interpretation behind what he heard, and there was something in the interpretation. There was something in what took place in that word from Jezebel that snapped something in him. He saw something. And and being the inquisitive uh, person that I am, I, I asked the question, I think, well, what did he see? <laughs> well, because this response doesn't seem to match up with who this man is. So what is it that he saw? I think, first of all, he saw that the heart of the nation was turned in the moment when the people said, the Lord, he is God. But he also saw that the turning of the nation was not strong enough to reach to the leadership of the nation. The people in the nation were affected. They were convinced. They were converted. But the people with the power, the people with influence, the people that shaped policy, the people that would be followed the people that could implement implement laws and policies and restrict and make life harder or easier, those people were not affected by what happened. They dug their heels in even deeper. And I think that there was something that happened in Elijah that when he realized that it didn't reach onto the government, he saw the shallowness of the turning. That at best this is going to be temporary, and I don't know that this is deep enough or if it was strong enough It's probably going to fail. I think he also saw in that moment the unchecked power of Jezebel. She had a track record of killing prophets. She had been doing it for three years of famine, desperately even searching for Elijah to kill him and not able to find him. There was an underground Railroad, if you would, of hiding prophets during those days because of the campaign to kill the people of God by Jezebel and Ahab. And when he saw the unchecked power of Jezebel knowing her track record, he saw himself in a sense as being out of time with nowhere else to hide. And he thought for some reason, things are going to be different this time and she's going to succeed in killing me. And so it tells us that he ran For his life. That was the outcome of it. Now, just in case you're confused for a minute. Elijah did not run for his life in this moment. Elijah ran from his life in this moment. Okay? What we discern, what we recognize, is that this man was under a tremendous amount of pressure in this moment and because of this circumstance. You say, what was the pressure that became too great for this man, the spiritual man, to the point where he cracked and now quits and runs away from the moment that God has raised him up for. I believe, first of all, it happened because he was oversensitive to Jezebel and underconfident in God. He was oversensitive to the threat that was in front of him And his confidence in God at that moment became very small. Jezebel represents the immediate threat to destroy him. And God in this moment is the sustaining force that would keep him. And for Elijah, Jezebel's threat seemed very plausible and God's promise seemed very distant. And it seemed in his mind that it's easier to believe that Jezebel is going to be successful than that God is going to be able to deliver me. I don't know if you can relate to ever being in a situation where the thing that threatens to undo you seems more real than the promise of God who says that he will keep you. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where it's easier to believe that you're going to lose your house than it is to believe that God's going to provide, and he's going to keep that which has been committed to him. If you've been in a situation where it's easier to believe that things will fall apart, than it is to believe that God's going to hold all things together, whether it's in your family, or even in your mental health, or in a situation that you find yourself in. Sometimes we look and we say, well, I survived 2008. But I don't know if I'm going to make it through the rest of 2022, looking at the things that are happening right now. This one is probably going to get me. God was faithful thus far, but I think maybe his promises are only strong enough to carry me to here. And that was the kind of thing that was going through Elijah's mind. And he felt the pressure of it, the threat of it, and he caved to it. There's another part of this that kind of reveals the pressure that he was under as well. It's in the last sentence uh, of verse four, the passage that we read at the opening of the chapter in what he said to God. He said to God, he said, "I, I wish for myself that I could die, he said, because I am not uh, worthy of my father's, or, or I am not better than my father's. Listen to this. The pressure, part of the pressure that he was under is that he knew inside that he wasn't living up to a self-imposed standard that he had of what he thought his life was supposed to look like. And if you just think about it for a minute, how many, how many uh, righteous people in Israel looked at Elijah and said, I wish my life could be more like his? And yet Elijah in that moment was looking at the people that had gone before him, David and Moses and Abraham, and he was comparing himself to them and saying, I I just can't measure up. I can't do enough. I can't pray enough. I can't believe enough. I can't, I can't do this thing anymore. And he says to God, Would you just please take my life because I cannot Keep up my attempt to try to live according to this standard. It's just not going to work for me. And so he says to God that he wants to die. Now, don't be deceived. Elijah did not want to die. And you know how we know that? Because if he wanted to die, he could have just stayed where he was. And he w- could have died. he had been like, all right, send her. I'm, <laughs> I'm done. Just let this thing... You know. No, no, no. The reason that he ran was not because he wanted to die. The reason he ran is because he wanted to live and he wasn't experiencing life on the level that he thought that he should be according to who he was being a man that was filled with the God of life. His last victory didn't give him enough strength to face the next battle and he was caving under the pressure. We see in the next few verses that he slipped into a depression. Watch what happens in verse 5. It says that as he laid and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals and a cruse of water or a vessel of water, a glass of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and he laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Do you see the, do you see the, the, the pattern, the progression of what happens in these two, two short verses? He's overwhelmed, so he goes to sleep. He wakes up, he eats carbs, because for some reason that's just comforting. <laughs> you know, a cake baked upon the coals, drink some water. He goes back to sleep, he wakes up, and he eats now, I don't know if you've ever struggled with depression. I have. I know what it's like. What do you do when you're depressed? <laughs> you sleep, you get up, you eat, you go back to sleep, and then you get up and you eat and you go back to sleep. There's something happening here. There's a depression uh, that is over him. You know what's interesting here? What would you do, right? You're, you're in a cave, under you're, you're under a juniper tree, And you wake up and there's an angel there that kind of nudged you and brings you a pizza and a glass of clean water. And you are so in a fog that you don't even recognize what just happened. I mean, if you know the story of Elijah, during the three years of famine, he was camped out by a a dirty creek. And he was eating stale breadcrumbs that were brought to him by a dirty bird. I mean, he was not living well when he was by the creek. Now, he's got it way better than he did then, but he's in such a position in his spirit, in his heart, in his soul, that he can't even recognize the good grace that's being given to him here at this moment. And just think about the the profoundness of this moment, that the spiritual victory and miraculous, powerful thing that just happened was not enough to sustain him, and the quality of life that has increased in proportion to what he had had previously is not enough to bring thanksgiving into his heart or for him to even recognize the things that are going on inside of him. And that's an interesting thing to think about, what's going on in this spirit-filled man. Verse 8 is extremely telling. Look what it says in verse 8. It says that he arose now, and he did eat and drink, And he went in the strength of that meat, that food, for 40 days and 40 nights unto Oreb or Horeb or Mount Sinai, which is the mountain of God. Okay, that's good pizza. (laughs) All right, if you can eat a little bit of food and drink a little bit of water and then you get up and you just start running and you run for 40 days and 40 nights. You guys ever heard of ultra marathon runners? you know, there's the marathon, right? 26.2 miles. And, you know, people that say, I ran a marathon, I ran a marathon. And you're like, man, that's crazy. I'd never run a marathon. Well, they, they're nothing anymore. Okay. Because now it's ultra marathons. It's people that run 50 or more, sometimes upward of a hundred miles all at once. It's the ultra marathon. Do you know how far it is from Beersheba to Mount Sinai? It's 193 miles. Okay, so get running, ultra marathon runner, all right, because Elijah still has you beat in this thing. All right, but, but here's what I want you to see. Here's the profoundness uh, of this moment is that you have this man, watch this, he's empowered by God because you don't run 193 miles unless the Spirit, of, just like he outran Ahab's chariot, all right, he's got the Spirit of God in him. He's empowered, but he's also estranged. Why do you go to Mount Sinai? I mean, think about it. Just be honest with me, somebody in here. Have you ever felt so far from God that you had the thought for a moment, there has to be a place on the planet where I can literally physically go and God is there? I have. I've actually thought if maybe he's still on Mount Sinai. And if I could get there, then maybe I would hear from him. No doubt that is somewhat of what's going on within Elijah. Why do you go to Mount Sinai? Why not just disappear, go to Midian like Moses did, or go to Babylon, like just go somewhere where you can live out the rest of your days. He's like, no, I'm going to Mount Sinai because I need God in this moment. Do you you see what's happening here? He has God, but he's estranged from God. He has the Holy Spirit, but yet there's a disconnect. There's something missing there's something not happening. There's something that's right. He's running on God's power, but he can't find God's presence. And so he goes to Mount Sinai, and guess who meets him there? Who was there waiting for him? Who probably was there with him all the time. It says in verse 9, it says that he came thither there unto a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What are you doing here, Elijah. Pay attention to the questions that God asks in the Bible. It's a very good question. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And you know what's interesting about it is that both Elijah and God have an answer to that question. Elijah has a reason why he's there, but God also has a reason why Elijah is there. And we get to hear both of them here in the text, okay? And here's Elijah's answer uh, in verse 10. He says this. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And now they seek my life to take it away. Now, let me interpret that for you. Okay. Uh, And I don't know if, if you have, you know, Elijah had a relationship with God because you don't talk to God this way unless you know him a little bit and you have some history. But here essentially is what Elijah is saying to God. He says, God, listen to me. I have committed my life to you. I've committed my will, and I've surrendered it to your will. I've given you my actions, and I have even given you my emotions. I have felt what you feel. I am jealous for you. When I look at the nation that has turned its back on you, I have reached the point of empathizing with God over the condition of the nation. That's how much I've given of my life to you. I have given my life to seeing your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we as a nation are supposed to be Israel. Israel means governed by God. That means that we're supposed to be a unified, anointed, devoted, purified people that is on mission for you, a light to the nations, prosperous, the head and not the tail, and it's supposed to be for us like it was with David and Solomon. That's the promise that you gave, and you called me as a prophet to bring people back to this place. That's what I exist for. It's what you've called me to restore, and God, I did my best. There is not one thing that I can do that is beyond what I have done for you. I had my most powerful moment. I gave my best effort. I labored. I believed. I prayed. I stepped out in faith. I saw you work. I slew the prophets of Baal. I cannot do more. I cannot do better. And you, God, did not do what you were supposed to do because the heart of the people is not turned back to you, but instead they've torn down your altars, they've defiled your temple, and they've slain the prophets, your prophets with the sword. And now after all of that, they are still seeking my life, perhaps the only one left in this thing. They've forsaken, thrown down, and I'm the only one in this, in this thing that's left. That what was going on inside of Elijah. He thought, There's, what else can I do? God, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. I did my part. You're not doing your part. That's what's going on. You know what God says? Oh, man, you're right, Elijah. I tried. (laughs) No, God says, okay, Elijah, you're so smart. Come here. I'm paraphrasing, but that's exactly what happens. Verse 11, God said, go forth. You can just that that. Come here. If God ever says go forth, just come here. He's saying, come here. And I want you to stand upon the mountain in front of me. I want you to stand. I want to show you something. And now we get to see, because we know why Elijah's here. Now, Now we get to find out why God has him here. It says that he stood before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now, I don't know what kind of power you have to put behind wind to break rocks. But God knows, and God passes by, and he causes rocks to break because of wind. But notice that it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then it says that after the wind, there was an earthquake. And it doesn't tell us what the earthquake did, but you can imagine that it was powerful enough to shake Elijah and shake things up quite a bit around him and probably some things within him but it says that the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake, it says a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So we see a wind, we see an earthquake, and we see a fire, and we see that God was not in any of these things. What is God trying to show Elijah? He's saying to Elijah, he's saying, listen to me, Elijah, I want to teach you something. You've got to understand something is that you can have the miraculous, you can have wonders, you can have situations change in your life, you can have things happen that are so impossible in the eyes of men and so wondrous that will cause people's minds to change, hearts to turn, post things on YouTube, get one million views over because of it. You can have all of those things and I cannot be in them. You can have those things without having me. But notice what it says after that. It says that after the fire, there was a still, small voice. And when there was a still, small voice, something changes. It says, that in verse 13, that it was so that when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and he stood in the entering end of the cave, and behold, there came a voice Unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And every other time it says that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. But now it says the voice. There's something different, there's something that happens. And, And it so affects Elijah that he's boldly, he's boldly going, God, you didn't do. I've been jealous for you. You didn't keep your side. This is what happened. And all of a sudden, God, the, the, the earthquake, and he's adamant. The wind, he's adamant. The fire, he's adamant. And then whisper. And he, whoo, he, he goes, whoa. And he takes his mantle, and he covers his face. There's an awestruck. There's a fear. There's a reverence. There's an awareness. There's a presence. There's something that happened. Think about how profound it is. That that God isn't necessarily there in the miracle, in the wonder, in the sign, in the moment, in the crowd, in, in, in the big event, the circumstances that's supposed to change everything. God can be not in it. But then you can have a moment where there's none of that happening. There's no miracle, there's no sign, and all of a sudden, in a moment, you become aware of the fact that God is right there. That means God God didn't just show up. God was there the whole time, and yet Elijah couldn't sense it. There was something separating. He had something, but he was missing something. Here's here's the message. This is what God is trying to communicate to Elijah. Listen to me, son. The value, the treasure, the substance of life is not in the miracle It's not in the situation changing. It's not in the breakthrough. It's not in the revival and having everything in your life just the way that it's supposed to be. That's not where the value of life is. The value of life is me. It's in knowing me. It's in walking with me. It's in hearing from me and talking to me and walking with me. That's where the essence, that's where the value is. And the reason why you're stressed, you're overwhelmed, you're depressed, you're frustrated is not because God's not there, and it's not because you don't have God. It's because you're not experiencing the God who's there. There's something separating. And Elijah's mantle moment, this moment where he hears this still small voice, Is the time that he realizes that God was closer than he thought, but that he was looking for him in all of the wrong places. See, Elijah thought that God had to be found, he had to be earned, he had to be deserved, he had to be attained, learned, prayed down, impressed enough to do something, that God had to be in the perfect situation. But what he didn't realize is that God didn't need any of that, he only needed to be received. See, God wasn't interested in what Elijah would do for him. He was interested in Elijah. He didn't want the work that he would get out of Elijah, the calling. He wanted Elijah. The relationship, that's what was important to God. That's what all this is about. That's why Elijah's there. He's like, Elijah, you need to learn me. You know what's amazing? Is that after this moment, watch what happens in verse 13. Verse 13. It says that it was so that when he wraps his face in the mantle and God says, what are you doing here? It says in verse 14, sorry, he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. You know what it tells me? He, he planned this speech. He repeats the exact same thing again. And watch God in verse 15. It says, the Lord said unto him, he says, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Melechah, shall you anoint to be prophet in your room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will slay. And by the way, verse 18, I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed down unto Baal and every mouth which has not kissed him. Do you see the level of detail there is in the intimacy that exists now between Elijah and God? Is that God is speaking to him so intimately, so specifically giving him instructions and then, and then of course saying like, hey, you know, it's, you're know, you not quite as important or as unique uh, as you a- a- actually think uh, that you are in this moment. But, but here's what you need to understand is that for Elijah in this moment, the circumstances in Israel and in his life did not change. Nothing changed. Elijah didn't change. He was the same man. He was still Elijah when he walked away from this experience. He was the same man. But his experience with God definitely changed. His intimacy with God Change and God now gives him these words. He says, "I want you to go do a couple things. You are going to anoint Haziel. You are going to anoint the the other guy. You are going to anoint Elisha, who's going to be your successor. Because believe it or not, my plan is going to go further than just your life. You are not the end of all things. And there is seven thousand people that know me probably even better than you do." That's what God says to him in this thing. But here is what God's communicating to Elijah. He's saying, "Elijah, you have this expectation in your mind." of what it's supposed to look like when you're close to me or used of me or when I'm at work, and you don't have a clue. I'm doing things that you have no idea about, and you think that the nation is going to turn back to me. I want you to go anoint Hazael in Syria to be king over Syria and Damascus. Do you know know who Hazael was? He was Putin. Okay, He terrorized Israel. When you go and you read 2 Kings chapter 8, and if you're good with numbers, you'll remember that, and you'll read it, read it later, and you go look at what happens when Haziel becomes the king over Syria, he just goes and kills Israelites. And here's God telling Elijah, I want you to go anoint him king. You think, well, God, don't you know? Yeah, no, I know. I know what I'm doing. You don't know what I'm doing. That's the point. And I am going to turn the heart of the nation back to me. But before I do that, there's some other people that need to be eliminated, and I'm sovereign enough to know how to do that, and you're going to have to trust me because you don't know everything that you think you know. See, when we have an expectation of what we think things should look like, and God doesn't follow through with what we think, we often distance ourselves and think, well, when it's right, then I'll know. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you to get me to do your thing. I'm asking you to surrender to my thing and be a part of it. I'm inviting you into what I'm doing There are, and I'm getting close to closing, there are many Christians that experience the power of the Holy Spirit, but they live in a state of stress, depression, anxiety, and frustration. And the reason for it is because they don't live in an experience with the person of the Holy Spirit. They may have the power of the Holy Spirit working in their life, they are saved, but they're not experiencing the relationship and the intimacy of knowing him. Do you know what the difference is between a wire and a conduit? An electrical wire that, 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 you know, causes current to flow from one place to another. An electrical wire, the energy of it flows on the surface of it. It does not flow through the wire. It surrounds the wire. A conduit, on the other hand, which carries water or another substance from one place to another, is hollow, and the substance flows through the conduit from one place to another. And there's far too many Christians that relate to God as a wire. They have God, but it's an external force. He's working in their lives, but he's not on the inside. He doesn't have access. There's something blocked off. What he wants is for us to be a conduit so that he gets in us, and it changes the experience from the inside. That's what God wants to do. Paul asks the question to a group of disciples in Ephesus, and he says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Are you living in an experience with God the Holy Spirit within your life? And I think that is probably the most profound question that can be asked, that Paul could have asked, not because of of what it implies, but just plainly because of how simple it is. He says, have you received it? Have you just received it? It's so incredibly simple. Because what happens is that many Christians, we resist without realizing. We, We are invited to receive, but we resist it right? Jesus, John chapter 20, he had already died. He was crucified. He paid the price. Access is open. You have full access to God because of of Christ. And he comes and he meets his disciples and he breathes on them. John 20, verse 20. And then he says, receive the Holy Ghost. He said, I've been waiting for this moment. Receive the Holy Ghost. And, And we read it and we kind of read over it. But there's something inside of us. It's this twisted part of our human nature that he says receive it, but we interpret it, achieve it. And we think like, okay, well, the access is open now. So let's roll up our sleeves and let's work this thing out and let's get all that God says that he wants to give. I'm going to become worthy. I'm going to act this thing out and I'm going I'm to get it. And he says, no, no, you're, you're missing it. It doesn't work that way. You're being a conduit, you it doesn't or a, a wire, it doesn't work that way. You are not receiving it, you're resisting it without even knowing it. Jesus said, most amazing promise, John 14, 15, 16. He, he keeps saying it. He says, listen, he says, My peace I give you. My not like the world gives. He says, I am giving you my peace, the peace of God. You know what peace is? It's to be settled. It's to be free of worry. It's to be free of anxiety. It's to calm down, to be able to calm down in a moment of stress. And Jesus says, I'm inviting you to receive my peace. I'm giving it to you. It's a get, you don't have to earn it. You can just receive it. You can have it. It's yours. Receive it. But here's what we do. We say, well, because of the circumstances that are going on in my life right now, it's impossible for me to have Peace. So I'm going to hold your peace hostage to the change of my circumstances. I'll experience peace, God, when you change the circumstances. If you're inviting me into your peace, I'm inviting you into my problems. So you change everything around, and once it's right, then I'll have peace. And he goes, no, no, that's not what I said. I'm inviting you into my peace right now. And so what we do, instead of receiving his peace, do you know what we receive? Worry. Because you have to receive one or the other. Because situations come, circumstances are there, and so we begin to just decide we're going to worry about things instead of experiencing peace in things. And worry is a complete waste of time. Do you know why? Because worry consumes energy without productivity. I personally have spent so many moments worrying and, and, and I have no greater regret because every minute of worry has been completely wasted. It has produced absolutely nothing in my life. And worry produces absolutely nothing. But I still received it. And you have a choice. You can either trust and have peace or you can worry and not have peace. That choice is yours. He says, receive it, receive it. We go, no, I can't receive it. There's too much going on. I, I, I would do better if I obsess about it. I'm going to think about it. I am not going to uh, release it. Jesus offers forgiveness. He died on a cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. He took our place, and he paid for every sin and wrong deed that we have ever done, every attitude, past, present, and future. And he says, because of what I did, and the wounds in my hands, and my feet, and the blood that was shed... I invite you to be forgiven of all your sins. And, and we, we say, okay, well, if that's the only way, but we don't really receive that forgiveness because we have such a hard time forgiving ourselves that what we do is we kind of receive it. And, and, and I believe we do, we're saved. But internally, mentally, we put ourselves on this like probation where we're like, okay, well, I'm, I, my, my forgiveness is pending and I want to see if I can actually live up to this. And if I'm going to keep blowing it, then I'm not going to keep embarrassing myself in front of God and pretending like everything is okay when it's not. And so he's inviting us in. He's saying, you can be forgiven. You can walk with me like we're, we're closer than brothers. It's done. It's gone. It's finished. I paid for it. And we're like, I don't know. I, I'm so messed up, you know. And so we hold forgiveness hostage to our, our improved behavior when I get there. He offers us identity. He says, I made you. I can come into you, I can unfold you. And and we go, yeah, I know, but I just don't really like who I am. I kind of want to be like them. And so if you made two of them and none of me, and you can conform my identity to be more like that guy or girl or person, then, then if that's the identity you have for me, and so we don't receive what he wants to give in terms of our identity because we're not comfortable with who he's calling us to be. He extends to us unconditional love and he says, just receive it. I've loved you with an everlasting love. God is love. And and I, I genuinely, truly love you as you are. I've cast your sins as far as east is from the west. It's not even an issue anymore. I don't see it when I look at you. I look at you through the lens of my son and I love you like I love Jesus. And as I said, this is my beloved son. I look at you and I say, this is my beloved. And we say, yeah, but I'm so unlovable. I, I don't know, all I hear is the voice of my, my mother or my father that's telling me that I'm worthless or, or acting like I'm worthless even if they didn't say it and, and I know what I am on the inside and I just don't know if I can let you love me, God. We have to receive. Have you received it? He invites us into his joy. Jesus says, my joy, that you might experience my joy. And we say, I don't know if I can experience joy. You know, joy is something that can only be experienced in the moment. Did you know that? It cannot be experienced in the past or in the future. It can only be experienced right now. You either have joy right now or you don't have joy and he's inviting you into joy saying like at this moment i'm I'm asking i'm inviting you you can just receive my joy i can give it to you can i just ask you guys a question Uh, actually i'm going to ask you three questions you don't have to raise your hands Uh, you can if you want you can shout out because i like interaction it's way less awkward but do you do you personally do you tend to focus in your mind on what you have or what's missing yeah, that's usually what, what people say. Okay, number two, do you tend to focus on the things you can control or the things you can't control? Yeah, can't control. That, that, that's pretty good. And, and then um, finally, number three, do you tend to uh, find that your mind is in the past, present, or future? Okay. Now listen, let me tell you something. If you are constantly focused on what you're missing, what you don't have, and on the things that you can't control and on the things that you can't change, you are going to be depressed. Do you understand? I don't care how many antidepressants you take. You may be taking antidepressants right now. If that's where you're focused, you're still depressed. Because what Jesus invites you into is to focus on the things that you have, to leave with him the things that you can't control and to live this moment in the present because joy can only be in the present. He's inviting you to receive him that you might live in him and that he can do all these things that you cannot do. John chapter 1, verse 12. The gospel writer says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. He invites you to just receive, but you've got to receive. You've got to let go and believe it. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Elijah didn't change in and of himself. He was the same person when he walked away, but his perspective changed. He was a different man. On the inside, you could read the rest of the chapter. I'm not going to read the, the last three verses, but you read verses 19, 20, and 21. What you're going to see is that uh, he he goes from there and he, he finds Elisha. Remember, God said you're going to anoint Elisha. He's going to be the prophet uh, after you. And and so he goes. He, he he goes and he finds Elisha. And Elisha's working. He's he's sweating. He's on a farm and he's got a tractor, which in those days was just two bulls in um, a in a cart with a plow. And he's on the cart and he's sweating. He's working. And all of a sudden, he looks off in the distance and he sees this man with a mantle. I think that's like a cape, you know, like, but like a, um, you know, a shawl. And he, he comes and he sees this man coming and he goes, Who is that? And he sees him coming. And then he comes and, and Elijah just gets closer and closer and closer. And Elisha's working and Elijah's walking there. And Eli- Elijah takes the, the, the shawl and he puts it on Elisha. And then he starts to walk away. And, and Elisha stops. He stops, 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 stops. He goes, Wait, 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 wait are you Elijah? Yeah. And, and that was kind of the kind of man Elijah was. He was like, man, a few words, kind of like the, yeah, doesn't really look at him, just kind of keeps moving along. And Elijah goes, whoa, wait. He goes, wait a minute. I got to I got to At least, I got to at least go say goodbye to my parents. And he goes, I didn't do anything to you. That's what Elijah said. He goes, I didn't do anything to you. Do, do, he's basically like, kinda, you do what you want. And so Elisha goes, and he, and he goes inside. I mean, it doesn't tell us the interaction, but we assume that that's what he did. He goes, guys, I got to go. I got to go. And they're like, what do you mean you got to go? It's the middle of the workday. Are you going to punch out? No. No, I'm not going to punch out. In fact, I am never coming back here again. See ya. And he goes, and not only does he just go, but he burns his tractor. He takes and he slays the oxen, and he burns them on the wood that was the chariot. He says, not only am I going to go, and not only am I never coming back, but I'm going to cut off even the possibility of being able to go back to what was before. Now, just think about how unrealistic that scenario is. I mean, put yourself in your workday. You're working. You're literally, like, doing math on the, in the accounting books. And all of a sudden, some profit guy comes, and he just goes, hey, and he, puts his, he touches you with his thing. What are you going to do? You're to like, excuse me, do you have an appointment you know, like, can, at the end of the day, can you text or call? Like, you're just going to show up? Like, really? That's, what, that's more realistic, isn't it? What was it about the presence of Elijah in that moment that just touching this man, Elisha, of whom we assume he has no history with at all, and he is so moved by what is going on inside this man, Elijah, that he literally says, I can never be the same. I can never go back to this life. I can, I can never even consider what my future would have been. I am following this God because if it means that I give up everything I've ever known, everything I'll ever have, I will follow you so that I can have what you have. That's what was in Elijah after the fact. Do you understand what you are being invited into? When he says, just receive, he wants to place something inside of you, not around you, not over you, not miracles, not power, not the changing of circumstances, not a better life. He wants to put himself inside of you in such a way that you are so sensitive to his presence and his voice and his love, and his peace, and his joy, that no circumstance, no issue, no relational headache, no interruption, nothing can upset that peace. And as far as we know, Elijah had no kids. But can you imagine if he did? Do you? And if your kids were to feel your hand laid upon the back of their neck, in a moment when they're sitting and they were affected by what's going on inside of you in the same way that Elisha was affected by Elijah, what would their future look like? Or your spouse when you look into their eye, or your neighbor that you talk to across the yard, or your coworker, or your best friend. See, that's what it means. That's what it looks like to receive him. And it's the invitation that is, would you stand with me? Maybe, maybe you're here and you don't even know God personally. I want you to know that what you hear right now in this moment is what Jesus wants to do in your life. And he has removed every barrier that would keep you from being able to experience that fully. And it begins in the moment that you open your heart to God and you just say, Jesus, I give you my life. And whatever it is that that means, Lord, you died for me, I believe it. You love me, I receive it. And I want you in my life. For you that are saved, but you're frustrated, you're anxious, you're constantly in worry, you feel like you're going to break, just receive. Receive it. Father, I just pray over this congregation right now and I thank you so much that you're still alive and active today that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that you never change. And I pray for every heart here, Lord, that it would supernaturally be opened, and as Elijah, in that moment, heard something that so transformed his experience, I pray, Lord, that you would open every heart to be able to receive you in ways that perhaps you've been resisted, that you would break down walls of doubt, that you would break down walls of self-sufficiency, that you'd break down walls of trying to achieve something that can never be earned and that you would rise up faith and hope and that you would speak Father that you would declare sonship, daughterhood identity, love freedom, hope a future, peace sovereignty that which is exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, that we would know the power of your intimacy and presence in us. Would you grant it, Lord, that we would be forever changed by the person of your Holy Spirit living inside of us? We ask it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, it has been my great honor and pleasure to teach you these years, to grow with you, and to learn with you, and I just thank you guys. Thank you for knowing me, for listening to me, for uh, being a part of, 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 of this part of my journey with you, and I just appreciate you, everyone. I've taught 690 messages in this church, and they are all available you can get them on the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. You can get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get podcasts, Pastor Nick Santo. You can listen to them all. You can go through them. And anything that comes out ever in the future will be there as well. You know, But it's been my privilege, and I sincerely thank you guys. Amen. <laughs>